Well, friends, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, please join me by turning to 1 Corinthians 13. Last week, as we studied chapter 12, we were reminded that God gives gifts to bless and build his church. But as Paul continues to teach on spiritual gifts throughout these chapters, he wants us to know that in and of themselves, spiritual gifts are not sufficient to accomplish this task of blessing and building a happy and healthy local church. They must be grounded in love. So this week's message is titled, Don't Waste Your Gifts. For as long as I can remember, I have been intrigued by people who are unusually gifted but squander their giftedness in meaningless ways. These stories are so sad and tragic, but they are like a train wreck that I can't look away from. One such individual was a man named William James Sidus, who lived in the early 1900s and who has been dubbed by some with the title, The Smartest Man to Ever Live. By the age of two, he was reading from the New York Times and writing letters in English and French. <laughs> I don't have French down yet, and I'm just a couple of years older. By the age of six, he had a working grasp of the English language, French, German, Russian, Hebrew, Latin, Turkish, and Armenian. At the age of eight, he constructed his own language called Vendergood. At nine, he requested admission into Harvard, but they made him wait until he was 11. When he arrived at Harvard, at 11, he was smarter than most of his professors and gave lectures on many occasions. He graduated from Harvard at 16 and then began lecturing at the school more often. It was said that his IQ was somewhere from 210 to 260, which for reference was about 50 points higher than Einstein and Newton and about 100 points higher than the average person. This fellow was unusually gifted. But then he disappeared for several years until he was arrested at the age of 21. He served a jail sentence of 18 months and spent the rest of his life moving from place to place and held menial jobs. Then at the age of 42, he died of a brain hemorrhage. William Sidus was not the first, and he will not be the last to waste his God-given gifts. And though that was his story, God does not want that to be our story. So to keep us from wasting our gifts, he inspired the Apostle Paul to write 1 Corinthians 13. Now this text is often misunderstood as solely a chapter on marital commitments, but, but it first must be understood in its context. God's heart in this text is to teach the church that unless your gift is grounded in love, it is useless. 
Unless your gift is grounded in love, it is useless. The Lord is essentially saying to us that the one essential ingredient to ensure our spiritual gifts, usefulness, and value in the lives of others in the context of the local church is love. Now, without 1 Corinthians 13, I might be prone to think that what enables every spiritual gift's usefulness is something like adequate training or, 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 or someone's devoted discipline in refining their skills, or maybe even somebody's years of experience in crafting their gift. But the Lord says in this text, without minimizing the importance of training and discipline and experience, he says, unless your gift is grounded in love, it is useless. So friend, do you desire for your spiritual gift to be a valuable tool in the hands of the Lord to bless and build a happy and healthy local church? If so, then we need to lean in and listen to the very word of God in 1 Corinthians 13. So please join me now by turning your attention to what is undoubtedly the best part of this morning's message. That is the reading of God's word. Paul says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child and I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now, faith, hope, and love abide. These three. But the, but the greatest of these is love. Let's ask for the Lord's help quickly by going to him in prayer. Lord, we love your word, and we want to be shaped by your word. We want to be changed by your word. And we can't do that in our own strength and uh, in the flesh. And so we ask you for help. Please fill us with your spirit. Open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your word. 
and change our lives, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our first point this morning is all we need is love, verses 1 to 3. Now, what we have to remember as we set off in this study of chapter 13 is that it is actually a corrective. Chapter 13 is nestled between 12 and 14, and this whole letter is a corrective that Paul is writing to this church in Corinth who are doing some things out of, out of good practice. They are, they are doing some things wrongly, and he wants them to correct those things. Now, this church, if you know anything about the Corinthian church, was blessed with a lot of spiritual gifts. But because of that, and their immaturity in the faith, they made the mistake of thinking that spiritual gifts makes one a spiritual person. But that is not true. Gifts don't make someone a spiritual person. Love makes someone a spiritual person. And that's Paul's argument in this text. Now, have you ever seen those little styrofoam swords that boys are often hitting each other with. If you've ever been to the Taylor's house, you've definitely seen those little guys take those to each other. Or the Campbell's house, those guys will whack you in the knees with those things. Now imagine if you are out weeding the garden or blazing a trail in the woods and the only tool that you have to work with is one of those styrofoam swords it would be impossible to complete the task, right? Well, that's essentially what Paul is saying to every Christian in this section regarding their spiritual gifts. It's as if he is saying this. So, Christian, local church member, you see, you see needs that need to be done in the church? You notice needs that need to be addressed, and you have in your hand a tool, a gift, a skill set that you feel will adequately meet those needs. Well, without love, you will look like a gardener with a styrofoam sword. You will be useless to accomplish the task of building a happy and healthy local church. Now, with all kinds of definitions of love circulating in our culture and in our society, what, what does Paul mean by love in this text? Well, this word love in the original language is agape, which means the quality of warm regard for and interest in another. And as we will see soon, it is more than a feeling. It is an action that is on the offensive. And this kind of love, this kind of love that he's detailing in 1 Corinthians 13, must influence and infiltrate every area of service in the Christian life. With Paul starting this list off with the gifts of speaking. Verse 1, he says, If I speak in the tongues of men... And of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. The second is, is gifts of intellect and, and, and spiritual wisdom. 
Verse 2, he says, And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. And the third is gifts of service. Verse 3, If I give away all that I have and deliver my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. In other words, considering all three of these categories, we could be the most seasoned speaker, intellectually astute individual, and self-sacrificing Christian, and yet without love be of no value to the health and the happiness of the local church. The reason for this is because spiritual gifts don't have an intrinsic value. They have to be infused with love to have any value at all. If our economy were to suddenly collapse and, say, the UK took us over, they would likely change our currency from the US dollar to the pound. And at that point, our paper would have no value. It's because our currency doesn't have intrinsic value. It has to be infused with value. Well, the same goes for our spiritual gifts. We may, even as a church, we may be loaded with gifts, but if they are not infused with love towards one another in the local church, they are meaningless, Paul says. So friends, does love undergird and ground your giftings? If not, Paul is telling us that they are useless. It leads to our second point this morning. Our love must have legs. Verses 4 to 7. Now, one of my favorite cookies is an Oreo. And in particular, I like Oreos with milk. Now, some people that I know who like Oreos have a habit of messing the cookie up. And they do this by taking them from the package and then opening them and then eating the icing and then the cookies. And I think that is simply and fundamentally wrong. But that's actually how we oftentimes read and apply this passage that we're coming to most of the time, isn't it? This text in verses 4 to 7 is, is surrounded by two chapters of content. Chapter 12, where Paul is teaching really carefully that the church, teaching this church that God gives gifts to bless and build a happy and healthy local church. And then in chapter 14, Paul teaches that prophecy is a more superior spiritual gift to tongues because it, it, it has an edifying element to that particular gift. But what holds these two texts together? Chapter 12 and chapter 14 is chapter 13, which teaches really clearly that unless you use these gifts, unless you use your gifts in love, they are useless. Chapter 13, 13, you could say, is the icing between the Oreo. A lot of times we 
take these two patches apart and just eat the icing and throw away 12 and 14 so we lose the context, we lose the thrust. So in other words, long before this text informs our marriages and informs our relationships, it's a text that is meant to, to further inform our unity and our mission as a local church. It's a text meant to answer the question, now that I know the need for love, what does it look like in the church? Well, Paul tells us in this text that it is a behavior with 16 action verbs, seven positive and nine negative. He starts off like this, love is patient and kind which means that it is long-suffering and it is compassionate. Now, when a runner places his feet on the blocks and the gun sounds, he sprints. He takes off immediately. But friend, if you live the Christian life like this, you might outrun God's people in the church and completely miss love. Love looks like patiently enduring your Christian friend's sin and, and then kindly responding to them when they are expecting judgment. In other words, it's not running so fast that you lose sight of Christians that are moving at a slower pace in their walk with the Lord. Paul goes on to say, love does not envy or boast it is not arrogant or rude. Although these Corinthian Christians possessed a massive amount of gifts, envy had begun filling their hearts and influencing their relationships like a toxin. Paul calls it strife and jealousy in chapter 3, verse 3. And one commentator says this, covetousness wants what the other guy has, Whereas envy is anger that the other guy has it. So the flip side of that devilish coin is boasting. You have on one side of that coin, you have envy. On the other side, you have boasting. So you're getting a picture of this Corinthian church. You have some in the church who are envious of particular gifts or lives or lifestyles of Christians. And then on the other side, there are Christians who are boasting about their lives and about their gifts and about their lifestyles. This whole thing was perhaps provoking this twisted currency that they were paying to one another in the life of this church. And their arrogance, the arrogance in this church resulted in them settling in comfortably with their self-confidence instead of reminding themselves of truth. Paul says this is actually the truth in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He says, not many of you were wise. In fact, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Therefore, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. You see... They're responding to their sinful impulses of envy and boasting. And Paul says you need to speak truth to those impulses. You are not, you are not what your impulses tell you that you are. 
Your impulses tell you that you have reason to boast and reason to envy, that you deserve what that other person has. You deserve their gift. You've been a better Christian. You've been a Christian longer than they have. If you had their gift, you would steward it better. Or vice versa, you are a gifted Christian. You have a lot of gifts, and you're sort of taunting those gifts. You're you're boasting about those gifts. Paul says those impulses you have, Corinthian church, Christian in general, they are so wrong. Don't you see, Christian? God did not choose many who were wise. Therefore, implying he didn't choose any who were wise. He chose the foolish in the world to shame the wise and the weak in the world to shame the strong. What what a shot to their pride. What a shot to our pride. What a shot to our pride. May God give us the grace to feel that shot. But then Paul clarifies that love does not insist on its own way. Love does not insist on its own way. Now, you know this, arrogance, boastfulness, envy, and rudeness blinds us to the cares and the concerns of others in our life, and in particular, to others in the life of the community of the local church. So what's the opposite? It's not insisting on our own way, Paul says. Not insisting on our own way must affect every conversation, every interaction, and every aspect of our life together as a local church. And then he goes on. He says, love is not irritable or resentful, which means that a minor offense should not trigger an explosive temper. And love does not keep records of another's wrongs. Love does not keep records of another's wrongs. He goes on and says, it does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. If you were here last week, you know that this church, one of the problems that this church had is that it had become comfortable with sin. So comfortable with sin that it was allowing one member of this local church who was guilty of sexual immorality to stay in the life of the local church without any accountability or church discipline. This church and its members had become passive with sin. They'd become passive in their fight against sin. And friends, passivity in the name of love is evil. Love doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing. It doesn't rejoice in sin. It doesn't rejoice in transgression. Paul says, love rejoices with the truth. Even if it's not celebrated at that time. Love rejoices with the truth. And then in verse 7 he says, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So this final flurry of all things is a bookend to this section on the way of love. He says love bears all things, which means it it embodies patiently enduring 
the rhythms of life in the context of the local church. Patiently enduring the rhythms of life in the context of the local church. And love believes all things. Which means instead of having a spirit of skepticism among one another in the local church, we must have a heart that's first impulse is to trust one another in this local church. He goes on and says, love hopes all things, which means that we must want others to flourish. We don't have a secret spot in our heart desiring to see somebody go down because they have what we want or they seem to be living a life that is free from problems, free from challenges, and our life is full of problems and full of challenges, and therefore we, we hope that they go down. Well, Paul says, no, love hopes all things. You want to see your brothers and sisters in the local church flourish, and you want to celebrate those times of flourishing. And then he goes on and says, love endures all things, which means it never gives up. It's rinse and repeat. Rinse and repeat. You were sinned against? Well, guess what? 1 Corinthians 13 still applies. Rinse and repeat. Forgive. Be long-suffering. Be patient. Be kind. Hope. Endure. And then do it all over again. You see, friends, our love must have legs in this church as it moves towards one another in love. Now, the world is dying to live the way of love. You see this, right? You see this all through our culture and our country. The world is dying to live the way of love. The world all around us is groping in the dark to find the light. They're using the name of love, but they don't have the right definition for it. But God has the right definition of love that every single human heart longs for. But what the world needs is not simply a good definition. They don't need us out standing on the street corners, opening Webster and saying, here's the definition of love, therefore go. What the world needs is not simply a good definition of love, but a living example of it. And guess what, friends? That good example is a person. The person of Jesus Christ. Yes, we as the church are called to love, but we must not position ourselves out of place. We are pointing people to the love of God first which was supremely demonstrated in the sending and in the sacrificing of Jesus on the cross for our sins. This world is dying to live the way of love. And our first job is to point to Christ. Now, non-Christians are not going to be immediately convinced by the love that we share as a local church. And the reason for this is because the world loves itself whereas the church is called to love selflessly. Therefore, friends, I don't want to send the impression this morning, for us to be walking out this morning with the impression 
that if we could simply achieve this level of love in 1 Corinthians 13, this level of love with perfection, that if we all the time operated with this level of love, that the entire city of Fayetteville and all of Northwest Arkansas would come to saving faith in Christ. That would not be right. Nevertheless, our love towards one another in the church has a profound witness to a lost and dying world. Jesus says, they will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. As the church, we are not the Savior, but the Savior has set us up to be signposts, pointing centers to the Savior. Leads to our third point this morning, love never ends. Verses 8 to 13. So what's the antidote that Paul prescribed to a church idolizing spiritual gifts and abusing and misusing them during the corporate gathering? It was to place their sights on a different target, on love. He wants them to take the same level of energy and enthusiasm and intensity that they have for the spiritual gifts and place it on cultivating love for one another in the context of the local church. Love is greater than gifts because gifts will cease. But love never ends, Paul says. Now, when will the gifts of the Spirit cease? Well, if we're looking to the Scriptures to answer that question, the Apostle certainly doesn't say that they will cease following his death, and they will not cease even at the completion of the canon of Scripture. But he says in verse 10, when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. And then back in chapter 1, verse 7, he says something similar. He says, so that you, speaking of the church in Corinth, he says of them, you are not lacking in any gifts as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. You're not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. So in other words, when Christ comes back for his church, the gifts of the Spirit will cease. And doesn't that make sense? Right now, we teach. But when we're in his presence, no one's going to be asking me to teach. Right now, we prophesy. But when we're, in, when we're in his presence, there won't be mysteries that need to be disclosed and, and understood. We will understand all mysteries and all knowledge. But what won't cease at the coming of Christ is love. What won't cease at the coming of Christ is love. This Christian love that Paul is detailing for us here in 1 Corinthians 13, which the church only knows in part, will be in full through eternity. This is the dressing room for eternity. Life right now is the dressing room for eternity, 
as we prepare for eternity, we are trying on 1 Corinthians 13. That's what eternity is going to be. It's going to be in full. It's going to be in completion. It's going to be without the sting and the stain of sin. And Paul's saying, that's what it's going to be like there, and you're citizens of that place, so live this life as you are seated in that life. That's what he's saying in verses 11 and 12. His illustration in verses 11 and 12 suggests that the reasoning capacities of children limit them to seeing what's directly in front of them, whereas the the reasoning capacities of, of an adult allow them to see more comprehensively. His point is made well by this commentator's sentence. What hinders us from knowing more fully now, namely... Sin and its effects on how we think and feel will no longer hinder us. Our knowledge now versus our knowledge then will be like the difference between being outside in pitch darkness with a flashlight versus being outside when the sun is brightly shining. When the sun rises, we don't need the flashlight anymore, just as we will not need spiritual gifts such as tongues and prophecy. Paul completes this section by saying, so now, faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. Now, why is love greater than faith and hope? Well, it's the same reason that love is greater than spiritual gifts. Faith will no longer be necessary at the revealing of Christ. Because faith will be replaced with face-to-face. And hope will be fulfilled because all that we have longed for in this life will be right in front of us in God. But love will never end. And for that reason, it is greater. And for that reason, Paul says in the very opening verse of chapter 14, pursue love. Friends, by God's grace and as a result of his kindness and his mercy in our church, Living Hope Church has so many spiritual gifts. If you walk in on a Sunday morning, you experience so many of those spiritual gifts, the gifts of hospitality, the gifts of of administration, the gifts of singing, the gifts of, of child care. And the list goes on and on and on and on and on. And because of that reality, because of that, each one of us needs to ask ourselves a few questions. We need to ask ourselves, why am I using my gift? We need to ask ourselves, am I using my gift to serve and to love? Or am I using my gift like the church in Corinth? without love. History is full of people who have wasted their gifts, but may that not be the case with me. May that not be the case with you. If we are grounded in love, God will use our gifts to bless and build a happy and healthy local church that is set up for his glory 
and our good and a faithful testimony to the world around us. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We love you and we thank you for loving us. We thank you that as we sit up here and talk about love, that we, we don't simply have a definition of love that we are trying to align ourselves with. We have an example of love. We have a person who is love. Lord, your word says that you are love, and in your love you sent your own son. You sent and you sacrificed your own, your own son so that we as sinners might be forgiven of our sins and be welcomed, be invited, be received in warm fellowship with you. Lord, thank you for your love. Lord, because of your love, you call us as a local church to be walking in love, to pursue love, to be grounded in love. God, we need your help to live like that because we have the flesh, we have sin indwelling in our hearts, and we are offended by one another on occasion. And so, God, would you please give us the grace, give us the grace to be a people this morning who hear your word, and then, and then in the days, the moments, or the months to come when we are offended by another believer in this church, that our first impulse is not to explode in anger. Our first impulse is not to run away and leave. Our first impulse is not to split and divide, but our first impulse is to forgive. God, would you give us that grace? Would you give us that grace as a local church to live life like that? Lord, our hope, our hope is that as we live life like that, as you, as you fit us to live life like that, that we would see many people come to faith in Christ. God, please do it. I pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.